Okay, let me pray for us and we'll begin. Father, um, thank you for the Gospel of John and thank you for all that you will have to teach us this year. And we pray, Lord, that you would just enlighten the eyes of our hearts and our minds that we might know and love your beloved Son more. Father, I pray that you would be with us by your Spirit today and that you would teach our hearts that we would see him who, to whom we have life, in whom we have life, and who is the light of the world. Would you please be with me and guard me from saying anything would, that would be unworthy of you? And would you please be glorified in our midst today? In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so it's, I know, um, just talking to some of the leaders this morning, that when you start a new study, it's always hard to get into the flow of what we're, what we're supposed to be doing, what is, the, what is the author really asking us to do when we answer these questions. Well, it's the same way when you're doing a lecture and you're the first one to kind of open up, because, because you have to kind of understand what the whole thing says. And we had this wonderful lesson from Ryan last week that, that gave us this big picture of everything. But now that we're getting into it, one of the things that we're going to have to understand is how do we understand the prologue and put it into the context of the whole book? So I've given you a handout, and if anyone doesn't have, well, I guess you're getting it, that, that um, it, and I think it'll give you a general idea of what, what we're going to talk about. And if you, you can see on your handout that the first thing that we're going to talk about is the purpose statement that John gives us for why he wrote this gospel and why he wrote what he wrote. So um, it's written on, the, uh, the scripture is written on your handout, but I'll read it to us. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now this is so amazing because you know where this is found. It's found in the second to the last chapter of John's gospel. And, and what John is doing here is he's telling us the purpose for which he wrote the gospel. One would expect that this might be in the beginning of, of his gospel. And he would say, well, here's why I've written it. But no, he puts it at the end. And so he's, he tells us many things. And I'm going to just tell you four things that John is telling us by this purpose statement. And this is going to be important and help us to understand John's gospel even more. So this purpose statement is really important. So the first thing that John tells us in this purpose statement is that Jesus did many more signs than the ones that he's going to record in his gospel. And the indication is that there was a wealth of information, a wealth of material from which John could have chosen. He is talking about God, the Son, who came and lived among us. And he's saying that he's basically telling us there was just so much more that he did. I mean, how could there not have been? In fact, in the last verse of John's gospel, the very last verse, the very last chapter, it says this. Now, there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. 
So you, you get the feeling that John just, it must have been very difficult for him to choose what he was going to put in his gospel. Okay, so the second thing that John tells us is this. He says that the signs that he chose for his gospel took place in the presence of the disciples. Now, why is that important? That's important because what John is saying is, what I'm writing you, I writing here, I was an eyewitness to. And there were many other of the disciples who saw these things also. And it's important because this is attested to, this wasn't something that they heard from someone who heard it from someone who heard it from someone else. John is writing this because he saw these things. And so he wants us to know that. And I'm going to read a passage to you from 1 John, from John's uh, epistle. And we believe these are this was written by the same apostle. And it's in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And I want you to listen to the, to the um, words in this because there are so many words that will remind you of John's gospel. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it, and we testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was from the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and we have heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful how you can see how how John just can't stop saying these things about Jesus Christ. And he can't stop saying that he wants us to know these things so that we may believe and have fellowship with him. Okay, so the third thing that, that John tells us in his purpose statement, he tells us that the signs he chose, he chose for a particular purpose. He chose them so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Okay, so... What does Christ mean? What does that mean? Well, it is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word Messiah, and Messiah means anointed one, one set apart for a special purpose. And so who in the Old Testament was anointed? Well, kings were. We read about that last year. Priests were, and prophets were. And isn't it interesting that that as we have have grown to understand who Jesus was, we realize that he was the king of kings. And he was the great high priest. And he was the final prophet. And so that's what the Messiah was to be. And so that's what John wants us to realize, that we would understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And then the final thing that John says from this, uh, from this purpose statement is, <clears throat> and that by believing, you may have life in his name. R.C. Sproul writes this, and this would be, this, this is just a wonderful thing to, to understand because, I mean, this is the center of the center. John is echoing Jesus' own words. Jesus says, I have, in John's gospel, he says, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. And people who don't have life in Jesus Christ, they have physical life, but they don't have spiritual life. To have the life that God created us to have, we must have it in Jesus Christ. And that's what John is saying in his purpose statement. And we're going to find out that John is telling us that that's the grid through which we can read his gospel. If you want to know if 
if you are reading John's gospel right, then just go back to this grid and see if that is happening. Because if you read the prologue, did those things not happen? When you read the prologue, did you not see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? And did you not begin to understand what John is saying here in the purpose statement? And he wants you to believe those things because he wants you to have life in his name. Okay, so I put a little note on your um, handout because I want, I want you to always be watching for these key words. And there are many other key words, but these, these appear in the purpose statement, in the prologue, and then you're going to find them throughout John's gospel. And that is signs, belief, life, and light. And then I also want you to know that, that the opposites will be key because when there's belief, it means there's also unbelief. And when there is life, it means there's also death. And when there is light, it means there's also darkness. And we're going to see those terms throughout John. Okay, so then the prologue. Now, this is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. So let me tell you um, just some things. One commentator wrote this about John's prologue. He says this, The force of what he says is so staggering that the words almost seem to bend under the weight they are meant to bear. Isn't that how you felt when you read John's Gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. I mean, those words. I mean, you read them, and and they are staggering. They're staggering in their sound. I mean, they're poetical. They're they're lyrical. I mean, they, they have beauty to them. But that's not what the author is talking about. It's not the sound of the words that is so staggering. It is indeed the weight that each word must bear. And what John is talking about in his prologue is glory. He's talking about the weightiness of who Jesus is. And so as we begin to read that, this prologue, I think we need to have that that sense of awe as we read it because this is an amazing statement. Okay, but now we ask, okay, so John wrote the whole gospel. Why did he write the prologue? What is the purpose of the prologue? And so on your handout, I've given you some some thoughts from four uh, commentators on what they see the purpose of the prologue to be. D.A. Carson writes this. He says, well, the, the prologue is a foyer to the rest of the fourth gospel, and it simultaneously draws the reader in, and it also introduces major themes. This is going to be what we see over and over about the prologue. What is written in the prologue is going to be expanded upon in the Gospel of John. And what what uh, Carson is saying is he's saying, first, you read this, and it's so beautiful, and it's so astounding that you're drawn in, but you're also going to see the other things that um, John is going to be talking about. Then Ritterboss, and I really love this one, The overall intent of the prologue is clear. It is to describe the background against which Jesus' historical self-disclosure must be understood. And what he is saying here is, he is just saying that the prologue is giving us these amazing things we could never know, we could never know, if he didn't tell us these things in the beginning And so as he unfolds these things, then we're going to understand Jesus as he is revealing himself gradually in the gospel. 
And then Kostenberger says this, in it, in the prologue, John introduces the most important themes he will develop in the rest of the work. And so we're going, it's kind of like we're going to have the seeds here, and then we're going to see them growing and growing in the gospel. Finally, R.C. Sproul says, before he, before John enters into an overview of Jesus' life and ministry, he composes a look at Jesus' ultimate credentials. I love that. His ultimate credentials. That's what we see in the prologue. So we're going to spend some time now looking at the prologue. And I've given you a very simple outline from Ritterboss, and you all could have written this outline, but here it is, and we're kind of going to follow that. And if you want to take notes, you can. If you, I'm not saying there's anything that's going to be worthy of notes, but anyway, um, I've left some space there for you. Okay, so how are we going to do this? Well, I'm sure you talked about the prologue a lot in your small groups. You did a lot in your study at home. So we're going to kind of, in, in the majority of time, we're going to fly over the prologue. We're just going to look at the big picture. But sometimes we're going to stop and we're going to kind of hover over some things. So that's where we're going to, to start this morning. We're going to hover a little. And that is, there, I'm going to focus uh, on a phrase and on a word. And the phrase I'm going to focus on is in the beginning, in the beginning. One commentator called these words a sacred sound. Don't you love that? A sacred sound. In the beginning would have, of course, awakened in the Hebrew reader, the Jewish reader, it would have awakened him to what? To going back to Genesis. He would have thought this those words would have awakened in would have have awakened in his mind in the beginning god in the beginning god created that's where his mind would have gone to the beginning of the whole torah and and he right away john is making this connection with the old testament scriptures he wants them to be connected with the old testament scriptures however even though it draws the, the Jewish reader in right away, what John does next will shake the foundation of the Jewish reader understanding of who God is. And we're going to see how that unfolds in just a minute. Because John uses the words in the beginning, the, the reader, if he was, um, if he was um, a Jew, would have immediately thought, that he was going back to the beginning of creation. But that's not what John is doing. I tried to think of a way that we could understand a little bit of the impact this would have had upon a Hebrew reader. And I thought of C.S. Lewis's words in The Last Battle, where the, the, where the new Narnia, the, the, the new Narnia is there. And here's what it says. That here is what John is kind of showing us. He is showing us that the farther up and the farther in and the higher up that we go, the bigger everything gets. And the inside is larger than the outside. That's what's going to happen to these Jewish readers. And that's what John wants to happen in our own hearts. That the further in and the higher up that we go, that, that we're going to see everything get bigger and bigger. 
And so John is taking us not back to the beginning, but back to eternity past, back before time. Which leads to the next surprise, the word we're going to look at, that instead of saying, in the beginning, God, he says, instead, John says, in the beginning was the Logos. It's interesting that Logos would have carried meaning in both the Greek and the Hebrew cultures. For the Greek culture, what would that word mean? Well, I'm going to make this embarrassingly simple. And if someone who is a philosophy major hears me say this, they're going to walk out. But um, the word logos in the Greek culture would carry the idea of ultimate reason. Or as one commentator wrote, the rational principle by which everything exists the essence of the rational soul. In other words, it was like idea, it was reason, it was everything that the Greeks thought mattered. And in that Greek culture, Logos was not a person, it was reason, it was idea, it was thought. For the Hebrew, however, the Logos was connected with God's powerful activity in creation, in revelation, in deliverance. And if we just chose one example out of Scripture, well, we could go back to Genesis 1 through 3. But we also, Psalm 33, 6, because it says, By the Logos of the Lord the heavens were made. God simply speaks and his powerful word creates. So, why do I go through all of this? Let's just suffice it to say that no matter what culture you were coming from, Using the term logos carried enormous freight. And yet, as one commentator says, that whatever, whatever culture they were from, if they were religious, if they were non-religious, it doesn't matter. Whatever they had understood the term to meet, mean in the past, the author whose work they were reading was forcing them into new thought. So here, here is the purpose of saying all that. What John was doing was astounding. What he is unfolding here, no matter what, what, is your background, what your background is, this is astounding stuff that John is beginning to say. And so John combines these two weighty ideas and he gives them fresh thought. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now we're going to go through, a, we're going to spend a little more time in verses 1 through 5 because 1 through 5 is then unfolded in the rest of the prologue. But the word in the beginning was the word. And what this means is the word was eternal. He, the word did not begin. He already was. He always was. He never was not. And, and so in the beginning goes back before time. That's a big thought. But here comes a bigger thought. And this, for the Hebrew, was just astounding because this is what it says. The word was with God. He was distinct from God. He was with him, but he was different. He was distinct from him. And the Greek word there is pros. And that means that, that he was with God and he was in active relationship with God. It has the idea of being face to face. And one commentator says there was perfect, joyous intimacy. And we will see, um, as we go into the, um, the text of the gospel in John 17, listen to this. This is John in the high, I mean, this is Jesus in the high priestly prayer. And he says this, and now, Father, 
Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the Lord existed. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, what John is saying here is he is saying, Jesus is, was with the Father eternally. And this would have been astonishing, astonishing to the Jew. Because here we have an eternal logos that was with God, but now he's going to tell us something else because he says, now he, um, and the word was God, and the word was God. Kostenberger says this. He says, it is one thing to be with God. It is quite another thing to be God. Having distinguished the word from God, he now shows what they have in common. And what do they have in common? Everything. They both are God. And that is an astonishing thing. Everything that can be said about God can also be said about the word. And he, he was and he is and he is to come. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And then John goes on and he says, All things are made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Calvin says this. He says, what John is doing here is he is further proving Jesus' divinity or the Logos' divinity by showing us his works. What were his works? His work was creation. Everything, everything that was created was created by Jesus. He made everything, was created by the Logos. He made everything. Now, if we begin to think about that, everything. Everything he made, if we begin meditating on that alone, that could consume the rest of our time these nine months. I mean, we could begin looking at everything. In fact, we could invite Darwin in to, give, to help us understand that because he loves to look at things like that, at, at something in the sea or at how the eye is made. We could be astounded by that, and John isn't finished yet. Because then he says it's not only that he made everything, that everything was made, was made through him. It is that also that he is the source of all life and light. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Okay. I have to tell you that every commentator I read said this is really hard. This is really confusing, and... And I met with Darwin for a little while yesterday, and he said, yeah, this is really confusing. And so here is how I think I can best explain it, hopefully. The first part, we're going to look at 4A, in him was life. In the Logos was life. And what that is saying is he is the source of all light. We've just seen that, that he made everything. Okay. So most commentators believe that what is being spoken about here is creation. That, that this is just talking about all life, and all of life has its source in Jesus Christ. And if you remember back in Genesis, it says that he formed man from the dust and breathed life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. So our physical life comes from Jesus Christ. It comes from God through Jesus Christ. But from here on, it gets to be complicated, and, and D.A. Carson calls this the masterpiece of planned ambiguity. 
because it's just so confusing about what's being said. But we're trying. We're going to try to put this together. That life, that life which he breathed into man and into all uh, all creation, was the light of men. Now, how is that? Well, because that life has come to earth, and that light now shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It means that when Jesus came, when the Logos came, he came and he, just by his very nature, he brought light. And we do, light in, in um, John's gospel is always a metaphor. So don't just think of, of light, but, but think of it as something when Jesus came and he was the life and he was God himself, when he came, he brought illumination to the world. And the darkness has not been able to overcome it. And, and so it's what, when he brings illumination to the world, then he's going to begin talking about spiritual illumination. So the light comes, shining in the darkness, and when the Logos came in whom light was, light came and the works of darkness were made visible. So this life, Jesus Christ, well, the Logos, we're still talking about Logos right now, which is Jesus Christ. But, but when it came, when he came, this life just created light. How could it not? It was all truth. It was all, it was God. It was everything that came into the world. And now darkness was being revealed. That, that all of a sudden, if you think about, I, I, I'm going to tell you something about I, I went in the kitchen the other day and turned on the light, and the kitchen looked really good, I thought. But then I saw all these crumbs on the cabinet. That's what light does. Light reveals things that keep hidden when it's dark. And darkness could not quench the light. And yet I need to tell you that what John is going to unfold for us in, this, in his gospel is we're going to see light and darkness colliding all the time. All the time we're going to see that happening until we get to the final unimaginable collision of light and darkness. Okay, hurriedly. Uh, six through nine. Very briefly, we learn about John the Baptist. And he, here, the, the, the thing that we need to know about him is that he was sent as a witness from God. He is the, the bridge between the Old and the New Testament. He comes, and he's going to connect these, and then he's going to go out. We're going, John is going to go away after a while. And it says clearly, he's not the light. He is a man. He was a man sent from God. He was sent as a witness. He was sent to bear witness to the light. He was sent to point to the light that men might believe through him. You know what that means? It, when I first read this, I thought, okay, so John's going to point to Jesus, and then we're going to believe through Jesus, but it doesn't mean that. It means that we might believe through John, and that's what we're going to see happening next week, because next week, when John says, behold, the Lamb of God, he's going to be pointing, and then what happens right after that, we're going to find out that John's disciples begin to follow Jesus. Now, what are we to learn from that? We're to learn that that's what we're supposed to do as witnesses. We're supposed to point to Jesus. We're supposed to help people see Jesus. We're not to be the light ourselves. We don't take that on ourselves. We're just supposed to point to him. That's a, that's a beautiful thing, I think, that we can say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world.
Okay, 9 through 13. Uh, we'll go through this really quickly, but just highlighting a few things. This is what it says. The true light, which gives life to everyone, was coming into the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Okay, this, this, this section is the tragedy, because here's what happens. The true light, the source, the original, the perfect light, the one that in whose, whose glow everything else goes dim because he is the true light, the radiance of which just nothing else matters when this light is there. And this is the true light that was coming into the world. And you can feel the, the, the intensity of the story growing because we're getting ready for something huge. The true light is coming to enlighten everyone. So when Jesus came in, he brought light and darkness was illuminated and everyone saw it. This is not internal illumination. This is just revealing new things. Truth was walking among the people. And yet, though the world was made through him, the world did not know him. He came and the world did not know him. There was no excuse. They should have known him. But you see, the problem was they were in the darkness. And beyond that, it says here in this sad statement, is that even God's specially chosen people, the Hebrews, did not receive him. One commentator says, he was not a welcome guest among his own. But, then comes the glory, the next statement. But to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Now, this is kind of a summary of John's purpose statement that we looked at. To those who did receive him, who believed in his name, who believed that he was the Christ, the Son of God, he gave the right to become the children of God. But listen who these, how they became the children of God. It's not by who they were born. It wasn't because they were Jewish. And it's not because of blood or or who you, it wasn't that you came from Abraham or anything like that, nor was it the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but it was of God. It's an amazing statement. It is that, that it's not the ones you would have expected who were born of God. It is believing Jesus bears the divine name. If you put your belief in Jesus, there is a supernatural birth. You are born of God. You aren't born of these natural ways. You're born of God. It's spiritual life breathed into you. And we're going to see more of this when we get to chapter 3, when we run into Nicodemus, that this is a spiritual thing. This is a supernatural thing, and it's the products. Those who believe in Jesus Christ are the products of God's sovereign grace. Okay, finally. John now fills in all the spaces with the truth that we've been waiting to have unfolded, that life walked among us, that the pinnacle of, of God's love has now come down, and, and it came. God came in the flesh, and what did he do? He pitched his tent among us. In the midst of this ungrateful and dark world came this true light, and here he was, he came in the flesh. And he was not diminished in his godhood when he put on flesh. He assumed human nature forevermore. So forevermore, he, he has put on this human nature. And when he put on this human nature, you see, 
now we could behold him because he came down and we could behold his glory. We don't have to be hidden in the rock like Moses had to be because Jesus put on flesh and we could see his glory. It was a diffused glory that was coming to us. We could behold him and he could pitch his tent among us. And so now we, he has come and we beheld his glory. And here's the important thing about that, to behold. You know what that word means? It means careful scrutiny. scrutiny. It means wonder. It means focused reflection. And it seems that the more that the disciples beheld Jesus, the more glory there was. That glory as indeed the only son of the Father, and yet he was clothed, clothed in flesh. And not only that, it says he was full of grace and truth. He came, and he was this glory. And how did he come? He came to die, but he also came to be a dispenser of grace, of unmerited favor to the guilty. Not because we deserve favor. We were guilty, but he came just as grace. And he brought truth. That final reality was not here. There would be no more shadows. The shadows are being pushed away. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And that just means grace and place of grace. And one commentator said it's like this. It's like the waves on the sea that just keep coming. It never empties. There's always more grace than you need. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Though the law was good in itself, it had no power to save. Only in Jesus Christ have we received grace and truth. And then it goes on to say, who alone is at the Father's side. And actually that means in the Father's bosom, on the Father's chest. It is meaning this closest of close relationship that they have. And then it says that only he is able, and this is the translation, only he is able to exegete the Father. That's what it means. Only Jesus Christ, the one who has been with him for all eternity, is able to show us the Father. The Word is always revealing and communicating the Father to us. Jesus says in John's Gospel, when you have seen me, you have seen the Father. My friends, if we want to think about how to read and how to study this book, then we are to do the same thing. We are to behold his glory. As we read and study, we need to ask God to enlighten the eyes of our hearts and minds. That with each passage, we would begin to to look and wonder, to reflect, to meditate, to study, to learn, and to behold his glory. That's what John wants us to do in in this passage. Okay, closing. In a sense, what we are going to see is the humanity and the deity of Jesus played out on the human stage. And as we read through John's gospel, we will see the tragedy and the glory everywhere in in all that John's going to write. I found a commentary on my bookshelf that I, who knows where I got it. It was written in 1948, and I read this. From it, and I'm just going to read it. It's a couple of uh, paragraphs, and this is how we'll close. In the life of Jesus, um, irony is apparent. Although he was the true light and life and righteousness in all respect, he suffered all possible indignities. He was majestic, and he died in humiliation. He was powerful, and he died in weakness. He possessed the water of life, and he died thirsting. 
He was the light of the world, and he died in darkness. He was the good shepherd, and he died at the hands of ravenous wolves. He was the judge of all the earth, and he died at the hands of unrighteous judges. He was the truth, and he was crucified as an imposter. He was life itself, and he died the death of a criminal. But that is not where John will leave Jesus, because, of course, that was not the end of the story. Tragedy is not the final word. Victory is. Victory of love over hate, of light over darkness, of spirit over flesh. The true culmination is not the crucifixion, but the resurrection. Unbelief does its worst at the cross, and it is halted there. Faith holds on, and resurrection is its answer. The divine Logos has not triumphed by being revealed in contrast to the world as a spiritual vision untouched by the sordid realities of life, but rather by undergoing the worst life could do and by rising above it in everlasting triumph. Let me pray for us. Father, um, would you enlarge our hearts as we study the Gospel of John? Would you make this real in our own hearts? Would you make us not only to behold his glory, but to also be witnesses to that glory to those who do not know him? Would you awaken in us things that have been lying dormant for a while? Would you awaken us to this beauty that we are about to behold? And we pray this for your glory and for the glory of your beloved Son. And we pray it by the power of the gospel. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.